This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Friday, December 16th of 2016, it's episode 101. In this episode, playing supernatural creatures, plus playing games focused on particular holidays, handling a problem in Grant's Pugmire game, thoughts on gaming stories, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? I'm doing really well. The semester just ended yesterday. Excellent. I am starting about eight days of vacation. Nice. Well, I mean, if you count the weekend, right? Probably be nine, right? Weekend, five days, another weekend? Something like that. Christmas is on a Sunday this year. Yep. And we always get two days off for Christmas, like regardless of where it falls. So I get Friday and Monday off. Okay. And I'm taking the four days before it off as well. So it's like two weekends, the week, and an extra day. So I guess 10 days total. Nice. Yeah. So. I've done that before. I like that length for a vacation. I do too. And then I'm actually taking a week off after New Year's as well because I had I had not taken any other vacation time. Oh, yeah, you should probably get on that then, huh? Yeah, I'm actually going to lose a couple of days just because I didn't notice, and we only can roll over 10 days, and I'm down to like 12 and a half. Still better than my current job or my last one. Both of them are use it or lose it. I realize this is 100% a first world problem. (laughs) Anyway, Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, We're recording this before Christmas, but it's going to come out after Christmas, and Merry Christmas to all of you. Peter has not heard it yet, but... I hope that everyone has enjoyed the little Christmas treat we put out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this too, so... Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll probably send you a rough draft of it tonight, in fact. It's something that was kind of special, I I think special to do, and something I'd like to do again. Uh, Tonight we're going to be talking about playing supernatural creatures, which is a topic that was selected by our Patreon supporters. For those of you who are not supporting us via Patreon, now is a good time to start doing that if you want to. Uh, We've just changed things up. If you pledge any level of support at all, you get access to our show notes and get to put a question on our big list of questions that we roll on before we get into our main topic and answer uh, a question from you. And then, of course, once we answer your question, you get to give us another one. And if you pledge $5 or more, you get to vote on one topic that we try and address every quarter, like this one. So that's pretty cool. Uh, We're not going to get into the whole Patreon spiel. We've kind of done it a little over much the past couple of times. But if you want to support us, patreon.com slash saving the game. Check it out. Probably by the time you hear this, maybe shortly thereafter, you will be able to find me appearing on the Gameable Saturday Morning Show. I think that's about all I'm going to say about it now, because I'm not sure if they want me to spoil which series it is that I'm on for. But uh, I will be recording with them two days after Grant and I record this, if uh, all goes according to schedule. That'll be exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I I really enjoy talking to those two. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, they're great people to talk to. They're We are huge fans of theirs. Like, yes, sure, they're good podcast buddies. We're also just big fans. Yeah. Like, we fanboy on them every time we talk with them. And Yeah, I, I, I love everything that they do. It's It's one of the highlights of my podcasting week. It's nice to kind of bookend my work week with uh, them on Monday and Cartos on Friday, so... Yeah, tell me about it. I squealed with delight when they started doing uh, Gameable Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, that Scepter Dial series they do is amazing. Yeah, I think it's that, awesome. I think that's some of the best content they've put out, and that's a high bar for the two of them. Yeah, and let me just say, the cartoon that Peter is going to be doing... I'm really jealous. Well, you should have gotten your dibs in before I did. <laughs> well, no, because I picked 
two that were really important to me, but I I have determined, and this is maybe something we should talk about at some point uh, on the show, I've determined that I get really jealous about things like that, where it's like, you know, I know I am not the only person who has had strong emotional connections to a particular cartoon show. Yeah. I know that, obviously. But the fact that somebody else is talking about one that I had particularly strong connections to makes me actively jealous that I'm not the one talking about it. Okay. It's it's really weird. Like, uh, they recently did Digimon. And I was a little old for Digimon, but I watched it and I really enjoyed it. Like, I thought it was a really sweet cartoon. Every part of that episode was like, this is a fantastic episode. I'm so glad these guys are talking about and enjoying Digimon. I'm so angry that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) And we really should talk about that. Like, revisiting jealousy from our Virtues and Vices series. Because, oh man... (laughs) Well, we I'm could do a second pass that. at it, so... Yeah, uh, we may need to, or at least talk with them about it, who knows. I, I know, I think, both of the ones that you're going to be doing, and I'm anxious to hear what you have to say about those, so... Yeah, one of them's a little esoteric, one I think is one we'll all Yeah, one, one is not esoteric at all. One is no. very mainstream. <laughs> I do have something I, I want to talk about, though. Well, first of all, let me just say, I'm really excited to hear you on Gameable Saturday morning, and as soon as those episodes go live, believe me, we will be promoting it constantly because it's going to be really cool content. I have something I want to talk about with you, though, before we get to our Patreon question and our main topic here. All right. Something really interesting happened in our Pugmire game. Okay. We're recording this on a Friday. Uh, We play Pugmire on Wednesdays, okay? Every other Wednesday. If you'll notice, I've been talking about Pugmire a lot lately. It's because it's really fresh every time we record. Yeah, most of the time it's yesterday. This time it's two days ago because I had a final yesterday. Right. You know, we were all geared up to start playing Pugmire. Uh, For those who don't know, Pugmire is um, D&D with uplifted dogs and, to a lesser degree, cats, badgers, and a few other fan-created things. It's still technically, I think, in the process of being written and published. Uh, it's still technically in playtest, but it's been kickstarted, and Eddie Webb, the guy who writes it, has really made an, an excellent product, I think. It's 5th edition rules with changes that make it a little more animal-friendly. So, you know, we were all set to start the session, and one of the guys in our group piped up and said, Hey, listen, can we talk about the last session? Because I had a really bad reaction to it Ooh. after we got off the call. So what had happened was we um we were kind of kicking off the second arc of this this story we're telling. Okay. Because we'd started off with kind of a Pugmire one-shot campaign, as it were. And now we're like, hey, Pugmire's great. Let's keep doing this. Okay. You know, it's the classic party on wagons. We get ambushed by bandits. We fight off bandits. Right? Right. Nice little battle map. The works, right? It was well set up. It was a lot of fun. And there were some fantastic moments in the combat, which was excellent. But... Apparently what had happened was this particular player had this incredibly bad reaction to it. And it took him a while, he said, to figure out what exactly was wrong. But he said, you know, he thought he was having fun during the session, and then he looked back on it, and he hadn't had any fun at all and was actually really upset. Ooh. Yeah. And what we determined, and what he determined after talking with his spouse about it, who's also in the game, and thinking about it for two weeks, because it takes a while to process this sort of thing. When you're, sure, yeah. When you're not sure what it is. We had been treating this as basically D&D. What do you do with D&D enemies? You kill them all. You kill them all. Well, it was really bothering him that these were animals dying. Hmm. Now, this is kind of funny because when we played Dungeons & Dragons with him, not all that long ago, he had no problem 
with wholesale slaughter of NPCs. Apparently, in the vampire game, just the week before, he had no problem sending out his, uh, you know, vampiric thralls to murder a postman so he didn't have to pay delivery costs on a package. Uh. But when an animal is hurt, it really affects him. Hmm. And there are people like that, right? Yeah, totally there fun. are. There definitely are. So it took him a while to figure out that that was really the problem. And we had had a scene where there was a meaningful death for one of the NPCs who ambushed us. We were trying to get him to surrender. He had surrendered, and then one of his own made sure to shoot him in the back and kill him so he wouldn't talk, which was our big clue that, wait a second, this is not just some simple bandit ambush. There's something more to this, because bandits don't do that. Right. And that really made us mad in character and out of character, which is a good hook for characters, right? Get the players angry and characters will follow along. Absolutely. That made us mad, made us want to avenge him. We made sure to collect his body, take it home, figure out who his family was, and say, listen, we don't care that he ambushed us. Basically, these are bandits attacking basically their feudal lord's caravan. Okay. So kind of a no-no. <laughs> Just a little bit, yes. You know, it was this nobleman who was trying to get this guy to surrender. You know, he told his guy running the town and everything, listen, no blame attaches. Nobody's going to say anything. Nothing. All right? We bury him with full ceremony and nobody says a word about it. He got caught up in something. It was way over his head. Made some bad mistakes. They happen. It's fine. Okay? It was a real intense character moment for them. No, well, it's a, a lot of mercy there, really. Right, and we were kind of playing into that. And we also had this very intense, very intense moment where one of the drivers of our wagons got shot and very badly hurt and was dying. Does Pugmire have gunpowder? No. Okay. Uh, it's, like I said, it's D&D &D with dogs. All right, I know it's post-apocalyptic because I did a little bit of looking the other day, but... Kinda, but it doesn't feel that way. And the existing setting that went through the apocalypse was still a fantasy world, I take it? Well, it's, it's post-man. Right. Ah, okay. So men are mythic creatures. They have left ancient ruins behind. They ha they are the creator species. Sure. They f they fill the role that the precursors fill in a lot of sci-fi. Right. And you know, if you are a cleric, you're a cleric of man. Okay. The moral code is to be a good dog. Yeah. I... But we're get getting a little far afield. So this driver gets hurt very very badly and is bleeding out. And the other noble character in the in the group whose entire character concept is flippy idiot with a lot of money. Okay. My character is a thief. His connection to her is that my job is to watch her when she goes slumming and make sure nothing bad happens and nobody kills the golden goose because she has no problem gambling away her family's money. But yeah. if something happens to her, her family will stop her and we will stop getting paid. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> That archetype of, you know, oh, well, it's daddy's money. And so we'd kind of established as a joke in character, the front wagon, all Lilu's stuff, all of her luggage. Even she doesn't know what's in there anymore, but it's all hers. Yes. Yeah. The driver gets rolled off the wagon and one of the bandits takes off with the wagon. There's this very badly hurt driver. And this noble character, Lilu, is, she is, in terms of character class, a healer, but she's been playing it as if she's really bad at it. And okay. hasn't been practicing, which is great. Something else to talk about. Playing below your mechanical skills. Something else we should talk about at some point. Definitely. And I, and I apologize for telling a gaming story, but it's really important to distinguish between the kinds of scenes that we're having here. 
So she runs up and she stabilizes him. And it's this wonderful moment because she basically does it by coming up with a song in character, basically like a Jesus loves me kind of song that everybody learns as a child. And she just invents it on the spot. It's this very intense narration of, you know, she's singing it, just trying to get him to focus and stay alive and stay awake. You know, and he's doing his best to sing along as he's writhing in pain. She has the opportunity to save her stuff and has this moment where she decides not to and instead saves this guy. Great right. moment. And, and we played off that guy all through the next session. We're taking care of him. We're bringing in someone to uh, to tend to his wounds and see the other guys who got killed. Gives me a chance to talk to that healer who knows the rest of the folks. Like, all right, did you actually see anybody you recognized? So on and so forth. So this player loved that scene. He was a little disturbed by this young kid getting shot in the back by his own. To be fair, that is a particularly appropriate reaction to that. It is, but, you know, he was a little disturbed by it in part because it was a dog getting hurt. Right. The randomish deaths from the other player characters, including mine, I should add, killing off the bad guys, as you do, killing off the bandits, freaked him out to the point where he was just distraught. Wow. And it was an interesting case of some of the stuff we've talked about before, right? Because we had a, a conversation about this that lasted about 30 minutes before we started the session. You know, we've talked about lines and veils before, and we kind of got into some of that using that language explicitly, trying to figure out what the issue was. Like, is it seeing this happen? Is it player characters doing it? You know, if an NPC and a PC take the same action and kill someone else, does one of those bother you more than the other? And the answer was, well, yes. And what it kind of ended up getting to was certain players had made certain assumptions about what the setting was like. I had assumed it was very D&D-like. And the GM had assumed the same thing. You know, like the default D&D setting, where these incidental deaths happen. And he had assumed, and made his character around the idea, that it wasn't really like that. It was still animal-friendly. And so we'd gone into it with different assumptions, and now we needed to sort that out. It was a really valuable conversation because it got to an assumption, like, one of those things where we would never have talked about it ahead of time because it simply never occurred to us. Yeah, I think that's one of those things with uh, Lines and Veils, going back to that, where it's worth bringing up, as we're kind of doing now, that people may not know where they all are. You know, yeah. you, you might not know that something is a line or a veil until it shows up in play because what you're describing there is something that had the setting been any different at all than it was, wouldn't have been an issue. I mean, if it had been kobolds or something, I doubt the player would have had any difficulty whatsoever. We fought giant ants at the end of the uh, first campaign arc. Yeah. Not a problem, because ants aren't cute and cuddly. Hmm. But he has a dog, he has cats. He cannot imagine hurting those. Yeah, there, there's a certain kind of, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say built-in, but um, common sort of animal empathy that goes towards these you know, domestic pet animals, dogs and cats in particular, because they've been part of Western society for so long that you basically consider them to be like a half step below people. Uh, folks have similar feelings about horses a lot of the time for the same sure. reason. That familiarity is what makes Pugmire powerful, because we know what dogs and cats are like. Yeah. But it also means that the D&D action-adventure stuff can have repercussions, emotional repercussions that we didn't expect. You know, the resolution to this, and, and I think the resolution is valuable as well, is, okay, this has happened, right? We're not going to retcon anything. But going forward, we're going to try and lighten the tone a bit. And injury and death will happen, but it has to be meaningful to the story. Incidental combat is going to be a bit more swashbuckly. 
That makes sense. And I think that's valuable in this context because it also gives us a, hey, this is serious flag. My character's a, a rogue. Rogues have sneak attack, they do precision damage. Well, instead of killing the guy by just running him through from my spot in the shadows, maybe I sneak up behind him and knock him out. Right. You know, the, the classic, you know, basket hilt to the back of the head KO blow. Yeah, the, the cinematic knocking people out always works trick. Exactly. Is it technically piercing damage or whatever? No, who cares? Point is, hey, I KO'd him in one blow. Great. You know, actually, that brings something else interesting up. The fact that some of those tropes, like the always effective KO blow to the back of the head thing, exist, I don't think people look at that as um, an effective tool for managing lines and veils as much as maybe they should. Sometimes those, those tropes have uses beyond what you would think. No, that's a good point. Anyway, it, it was a really interesting thing because it gets back to what I think is one of the core points that we try and make on saving the game, which is we are at the table for each other. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you've got something that's upsetting to one of your players, you got to deal with that. Right. We can't just say, well, you know, suck it up and deal with it. <laughs> Not and be any kind of decent human being anyway. Uh, right, right. Certainly, I as a Christian do not want to see people I am interacting with hurt. Certainly not by my actions, but yeah, absolutely. Know, in general, I don't want to see them hurt. I want to see them lifted up, enjoying themselves, learning something from the game. And I think this campaign arc, we are going to be learning a lot and doing a lot. It's going to be very emotionally intense, and I'm excited for that. But, you know, it's one of those things where everybody at the table is like, we don't want to see our friends that we play with hurting, and we're certainly not going to play in such a way that increases the likelihood of that. Yeah. I'm really glad that he felt comfortable enough to bring it up, right? Yeah, that that all by itself says good things about the quality of your gaming group. It does. Uh, I, there are groups where people won't feel comfortable bringing that up, and I think that's very unfortunate. Well, there are awful groups where bringing that sort of thing up will get it done to you many times over and worse next yeah, time because, yeah. oh, look, weakness. Let's stomp on it. Yeah. But it was a, just one of those things that I, I wanted to talk about because it was very interesting in terms of how we approach gaming and how we think people should approach gaming, which is to say, you know, it can be emotionally intense, but it needs to be emotionally intense in a way that everybody can handle and enjoy. Yeah. Because the rest of the session, after we had this conversation, was very emotionally intense. You know, we're dealing with somebody who's very hurt. We're dealing with a community leader, another healer guy, an NPC, who knows these bandits and doesn't want to see their families punished for their crimes. Yeah. And so my character basically had to sweet talk him and empathize with him and say, listen, we get it. We're not here to punish people and we're here to solve this problem. And I'm getting a little gaming story here again and I apologize, but took the course of, you know, listen, you're a healer. Think of this as a sickness. You don't heal an injury by punishing their family for having a sick kid, you heal them. Right. And then you try and figure out what made them sick. That was the t the, the tact that I took with them, and it was this great role-playing moment, uh, at least for me. And other people had good similar interactions. So very emotionally intense, but we're also backing off a bit on the thing that really upset this one player. And I think having an open discussion about it and thinking about that will make future combats actually more effective because... That kind of violence, when it happens, will be more meaningful. And it'll be something that we as player characters can then act on. Yeah. The cheapening of violence is something else we could probably get an entire episode out of someday. Yeah, I should really write these down as I go. Hint, hint, future editing grant. Write this down. <laughs>
All right, yeah, so let's roll on our table of Patreon questions here. Oh, this is cool. So this is from Francisco, who is one of the hosts of the Retro Rewind podcast. Patreon backer, relatively recent. Excited to have him supporting us. And here's Francisco's question. Okay, so if you had to run a game that centered around a Christian or Jewish holy day, Christmas, Pentecost, Jubilee, what would you both choose and why? Uh, Can I take this one? Yes. I'm going to pick Jubilee. I think the idea of having this once every seven year festival where you free all of your slaves and forgive all the debts and what effect that that has on society would be an absolutely fascinating thing to explore in a game. And I think that's also kind of a relatively fresh thing in terms mm-hmm. of most gaming settings or um, gaming groups where it wouldn't feel like it was played out and full of a lot of predetermined tropes. So I think that would be an amazing thing to uh, play around with. That's fair. Part of me wants to answer with Christmas because, you know, Barbarians Save Christmas or something silly like that is always a successful and fun one-shot. Yeah, we certainly had fun with uh, our Russian arms dealer buddy as a mall Santa in the Shadowrun game, so... That was fantastic. That gets away from the, the really core Christian part of it, but... X saves Christmas. Always fun. Always recommended. Was that the game where I had the uh, the powerful Christmas spirits show up? No, that was a shootout with thugs in a mall. Okay, one of the things I had considered for the Shadowrun game, by the way, was having uh, Santa Claus, a very powerful spirit in the Shadowrun world, show up. And for some reason, you guys had to uh, fly around on his uh, well-armed aerial sleigh. Well, there was a well-armed aerial sleigh. It was just crewed by sand. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, like, at some point, I feel like that was an idea that I had. I, I, it hey, was a long time ago. if we ever come ago. back to it, you can always do it. <laughs> Shadowrunners sneaking into uh, corporate offices to deliver presents. Tell me that wouldn't be fun. That would be fun. At any rate, to keep it Christian or Jewish or something like that, it's a trickier one. Um, and I, I admit I'm not familiar with a lot of Catholic and Orthodox feast days. So I'm kind of speaking to some degree from a position of ignorance because I suspect some of those would provide really good opportunities. Yeah, I'm sure they do too, and I also don't know them. I also feel like I'd have a little trouble with the Jewish one because I'm not Jewish and would not exactly do it justice. Like, I feel it'd be a a bit of a cultural appropriation and I'd be just working off stereotypes. Just, I'm a little worried about that. I think I might still go with Christmas because there's so much that happens around Christmas, even in the Christmas story, I think we could make that work. What did those shepherds run into on the way? What did the what did the wise men run into on the way? What was it like in, in Herod's court? I mean... <laughs> well, yeah, you, ha- you have court intrigues. You have the Massacre of the Innocents that Herod orders in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a lot of pieces that all kind of go together, and there's a lot of drama and action that happens you could make that work. It's still a little tricky, and I suspect there are other holidays out there that would be more interesting that I just don't know about. So maybe my answer is I don't know enough to choose one. (laughs) I think I still stick with Jubilee. I think um, even if it wasn't called that, something based heavily on that in a fictionalized setting would be really fun and interesting to play around with. Fair enough. All right. Yeah. So, Francisco, great question. Really interesting. Send us another one, please. You obviously write good ones. Yeah. (laughs) And folks, just a quick reminder. We love it if these are gaming questions, and so far they all pretty much have been. If you are one of our Patreon backers and you have some random piece of trivia about 
us or just like a weird humorous question that you want to ask or something, those are okay. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, have to absolutely. be serious business gaming questions. While we love those, we also don't mind you know something we can answer quickly and have a little bit of a laugh out of too. Variety is the spice of life, as they say. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's move on, shall we? We've got yeah. some scripture to read that's relevant to our main topic and then a main topic to get to. All right. You want to start with Isaiah? Certainly. This is Isaiah 9.13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And our second bit of scripture is Romans 14, verses 1 to 4. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So our topic tonight, again, this is a topic that was selected by our Patreon backers. Thank you folks for doing that. Playing supernatural characters. Also known as World of Darkness games as Christians? Yep, pretty much. Not gonna (laughs) lie. (laughs) And here we're talking about playing something recognizably supernatural in our world or a close fictional analog. World of Darkness, Inspectors, Buffy, something along those lines. Yeah, one of our previous co-host Brandon used to talk about Monster Hearts a lot. That would also fall under this. We're not talking about playing an elf in a D&D game. No. (laughs) We're not even talking about playing a ghost in a D&D game, actually. Because that's a fantasy game, and those tropes are much more mundane in a world like that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't stand out as much. But we're talking about something obviously supernatural. Now, a lot of people have spiritual concerns about doing this, and I understand that. There are certainly some people who are going to say, absolutely not for me. You know yourself, you know your relationship with God, you know your own weaknesses and strengths. (laughs) You know your own tastes, for that matter. Right. I will say that I think there is no inherent problem with it. It's kind of a question of, is there something worth exploring when I'm playing this character, or is this some sort of pure, unhealthy escapism? This kind of goes back to that C.S. Lewis quote that we love about the value of myth. It does, and, and I think more it's that weaker brother argument that Paul expresses in Romans. If this is going to be a problem for you, totally get it. Don't do it. If this is going to be a problem for someone at your gaming table, or maybe somebody who's concerned about you doing this, think hard about doing it. You know, if you're exploring something difficult, I'd say pray before you play, you know, in each session, either as a group, if you're all gaming as part of a Christian community, or even just quietly by yourself before the game. Pray for the strength to do that, do it responsibly, and to learn something from the game. I think that's entirely valid, and in fact is a good thing, and something I should start doing, frankly. Yeah. So, with that said, I want to talk about effectively playing and portraying supernatural characters. I think there's kind of a couple of tricks to doing this well. If your vampire in a vampire game is indistinguishable from a normal human... Except for they only go out at night, or maybe not even that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, eh, who cares? Like That's not interesting. Well, and it's interesting in that particular case that sometimes people will play a vampire as being indistinguishable from one of the immortals in Highlander. Yeah, that's true. And those are very different concepts. Well, they are. Some of that, frankly, comes down to the era when World of Darkness was written. Sure. Let's be honest. Trenchcoat Katana dude 
is a world of darkness trope. Oh, yeah. Pretty much regardless of the setting. For some people, the 90s never end. Yeah, in the same way that Shadowrun is all about trench coats and katanas. In fact, I think somebody made a a trench coats and katanas game that sort of plays off that trope, and it's apparently pretty hilariously awesome. Point is, playing a supernatural character, something really alien and inhuman, should be interesting. It should be something distinct. It should be something fascinating. Even in a game where all the player characters are this archetype, there are ways to make that really stand out, and I think really play up that part of your character. And this is one place where I I really do kind of want to give White Wolf some credit, because I think this is one of their strengths. They can take something like this, um, where you've got this overarching concept, like, you know, vampires or werewolves, and split it into these different flavors based on different storytelling traditions about that thing, and allow the players to explore different aspects of it and feel distinct from each other. They've been more or less successful with that. I think for Vampire and Werewolf, they've been relatively successful. I think Vampire in particular is successful on that. There, There may be some other issues with it. In fact, there definitely are. But in that particular regard, I think they basically hit it out of the park. Something like Promethean? I think they dropped the ball. <laughs> but, you know. I'm not sure they ever had the ball to drop it for Promethean, but yeah. Uh, it was a bit of a reach, yes. To get back to the point, though, part of the appeal is the revelation that the character isn't human. We're playing things that look human in most cases, and there's a moment in every horror story about them, in every movie about them, in every game about them, where somebody gets to go, wait, you're not really a human, are you? Yeah. That moment of revelation, however often it happens, should be really cool. Because it's a highlight moment. It's your character in the spotlight going, this is who I really am. Yeah, this is my thing. And there's a dichotomy, I think, between the human disguise and the inhuman reality. And that dichotomy creates a tension. The same tension that exists between a superhero's secret identity and their public superhero persona. Right. There's a tension between Bruce Wayne and Batman. There's a tension between Clark Kent and Superman, uh, between Peter, Peter Parker, Parker and Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yep. Just to at least throw one Marvel character in there real quick. Uh, <laughs> Matt Murdock and Daredevil. Actually, there's a huge amount of tension between those two characters. Exactly. And sure, this depends on the author of the comic book story who's playing. Yada, yada, Certainly. yada. We're not, we are not comic book people. We're not going to get into that. But that tension is valuable, and I think the tension between the person I pretend to be and the monster I really am is pretty cool. And that's something that can and should be played up. And the moment when you get to stop pretending to be human, that's when you really get to say, aha, here I am, and make that your own moment. Because I'll be honest, I'm so tired of vampire stories and vampire movies where, especially the... um. Interview with the Vampire sequels. Which I've never actually seen, so... Uh, you're a lucky man. Um, <laughs> where, you know, it's like, well, how do you know he's a vampire? He went, and fangs popped out of his teeth. I'm so tired of that. It should be so much more fascinating when somebody goes, wait, that's a vampire. The thing is, too, okay, so l- let's use this as a, an example because vampires are a very good one. Yes. The, the reveal that this person is a vampire should not be, and fangs popped out of his teeth. The reveal that he's a vampire should be, he walked in front of a reflective store window and didn't show up. It should right. be, you know, he turned into mist and walked through a security grate. It should be, you know, something much more dramatic. Fog came up and wolves start howling. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're we're getting into the classic Dracula style vampires. Absolutely. We are never going to be able to talk about all the uh, vampire traditions from around the world. You know, no. uh, we'll, let's just get that out of I the have way. a GURPS book that's a quarter inch thick about nothing but different vampire archetypes from around the world. It's called Blood Types. It's a very good read. Way too much material to cover here. I think it's like 140 pages. We're going to talk about vampires a lot because they're chock full of examples and it's a famous World of Darkness game. Please don't assume that we're getting all of it right. <laughs> it's, it's the lingua franca of this particular discussion. It kind of is. But, you know, you mentioned something else, too, that walking in front of a mirror, you know, not going out at night, that kind of thing. I think what a lot of people miss when they're playing supernatural characters like this is the weaknesses. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a hindrance, and it's supposed to be a hindrance to the character, right? But I think too many people just view it as a mechanical problem and not a role-playing opportunity. Yeah, and that's something else that I want to touch on, because these weaknesses are more than just a game balance issue. The vulnerability to sunlight is not the price that you pay for having superhuman strength and the ability to turn into mist, right? It says something about that character. It's that sunlight symbolizes purity, and this character can't be in the sunlight because it will disintegrate them. It, it will literally wash them away like dirt if they are in it too long. Here's the thing. Supernatural creatures like vampires, werewolves, selkies, whatever. These are supernatural creatures that are inherently magical. And magic is essentially the belief that ritual action can control nature. It can control chance. It can control the difficult, dangerous world around us. And these supernatural creatures embody the fears and desires and dangers that people try and control with magic. These are things the community is worried about. You know, I'm worried about somebody preying on us. I'm worried about being alone on the road at night. I'm worried about drowning in the ocean. I'm worried about my baby in the in the cradle. Yeah. Th these are fears that people have. Occasionally, hopes and dreams, you know. I would love to meet a beautiful woman. Because magical creatures embody those forces, and people want to control those forces, when we dream up these creatures, we give them rules. We give them restrictions. We give them ways to control them, defeat them, take advantage of them. You find a leprechaun. Well, a leprechaun's a trickster, fae, spirit, but if I get control over him, I get his pot of gold. He'll make me wealthy. That's something proactive I can do to solve a problem I have. Conversely, the thing becomes the problem. Like Vampires often symbolize disease, for instance. So sure. if we can just find the vampire and kill it, then the, the plague will stop and we'll be okay. Right. Good example. And this is one that's maybe a little less commonly used. Gullah culture, which is kind of an artificial culture that grew out of slavery on the South Carolina coast, Charleston and Savannah region. That's where Gullah culture is. The Gullah culture holds that ghosts and spirits can't cross water. From Charleston to Savannah, you'll see a great many houses with their porch ceilings painted blue, like a light blue or door frames, window frames, occasionally even the entire house, painted light blue. To symbolize water? Yeah, it's called haint blue. Haint being a Gullah word for ghost or spirit, right? Haint, haunt, you see the connection there. Yeah. And so the idea is you, you trick the spirit into thinking they can't enter because it's water. It gives you control over ghosts and spirits and the supernatural things out there, right? There's a rule, they have to follow it. By doing a thing, I control it. Uh, there's uh, the classic Irish-Scottish Faroese myth of the Selkie, the merfolk that has the body of a seal or the skin of a seal, and then they take the seal skin off when they come up on land. 
Ah, yes, the blue-green magic creatures that help you draw cards. No. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're glaring at me, I know. <laughs> I am. So, you know, it's the power of the waves and, you know, the, the longing for the ocean, uh, that sort of thing, right? Right. The mystery and power of the ocean. But when the Selkie sheds its seal skin to walk on the land, a man can steal a woman's seal skin, gain power over her, force her to become his wife. Yeah, that's not a batch of troubling implications at all. No, no. Doesn't play so well in the modern world. Right. But, of course, what are the rules? As long as he owns it, she's a good wife, if uh, ocean obsessed. If she ever gets the seal skin back, though, she'll immediately leave for the ocean again and disappear. So you, you have power over it. But that power is highly conditional. As, by the way, it often is with these kinds of creatures. It absolutely is. And, and my point is that these weaknesses say something about the creature, as you said, but they also, they really highlight the inhuman nature of this character and this creature type, because people aren't bound by that. Yeah, if you take some clothing from me, I will be annoyed and it will stop there. Yeah, this is a way for average people to get power over something more powerful than they are. If I'm playing a selkie, it would be really interesting if somebody got hold of my seal skin. We could have an entire adventure around let me get that back. Yeah. It hurts me to not be able to go into the ocean. It hurts me to not be able to see my family. But, you know, and you're claiming power over me by having this thing. Yeah, it, it, it hurts me to have to do things that maybe I don't want to do because you have this magical influence over me. Right. That's fascinating. There's a great story opportunity there. And having those moments where the power structure of the game, because all of these supernatural games are typically, we are better than humans in some way. Actually, there's one thing that I want to touch on about that too. That's a fascinating story. That's also a very potentially disturbing story. Okay, that that's fine. But, but what I'm saying is, all of these games are kind of about, we are more powerful than humans. We're going to yeah, talk about strengths definitely. in a moment. But this is a moment where that power structure gets inverted, and there's automatically going to be great story coming out of that. And so what I'm trying to say is, when you're playing a game like that, make those moments possible. Don't shy away from them. Don't complain <laughs> when they happen, because those are really cool moments and should be milked for all they're worth, not avoided at all costs, not metagamed away because, well, I just I don't think my character would, would ever fall into that sort of situation. No. It's really fascinating when a character who never falls into that sort of situation gets trapped in that situation. And has to figure out how to work around it and stuff. Just make sure people understand that you're not going to go to really upsetting places with it before you go there. Well, and that gets into kind of what we talked about. At the beginning of the episode. At the beginning, yeah. Veils. Be ready to have that conversation again because it may come up again after you've had some play. Depending on what, what's going on. If this is, you know... Haha, ha, you have to go rob a bank for me? That's probably silly, fun, ugh, fine, don't mind me, I'm just, you know, emptying out the safe deposit, but aha, I got my power back, you get arrested for the crime, I left your fingerprints on the scene. Yeah. You had a story that you wanted to tell. No, I think I just had a general point I wanted to make. Okay, was that made? It was. <laughs> just, just that this could be upsetting to people and be careful. Now, strengths also matter. Weaknesses, I think, are cool. They're worth highlighting and talking about in detail because we don't often talk about them in detail. I suspect people will skip over strengths because they're sort of the reason for playing their character, and they're like, well, that's just what we do. Yeah, the thing is, though, sometimes these things have strengths that you wouldn't expect. 
it can be interesting to kind of play around with and explain those. Like, okay, you brought up earlier in the episode the the vampire sign being a bunch of mist comes up and wolves are howling, right? Yeah. That's not something that typically comes up in a Vampire the Masquerade game. That's not, you know, one of the typical clan powers or something like that. But that's absolutely an element of Dracula. Why wolves and why, you know, why mist and that sort of, you know, I mean, obviously this is useful. I'll certainly take it. But but why? How does this link in with everything else? What's the symbolic value there? There's a very dark and graphic anime called Helsing. Have you heard of it? I've seen a few episodes. It's actually okay. pretty good, despite being dark and graphic. It's dark and graphic, so I'm not necessarily going to recommend it to people, but it is all about a particular vampire. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was the way that they visually represented this particular vampire. The control over wolves thing, right? When he gets to release his wolves, it's not natural wolves. Yeah. He opens up some sort of horrible shadow, and these demons that are wolf-shaped just pour out. And sure, this is, you know, hey, Dracula's super powerful, but it's an interesting characterization. Like, you get the feeling that this is what he does, and other people do it differently. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting that a lot of that, if it's the character that I'm thinking of, a lot of that particular character's visual cues and stuff are unbelievably sinister and evil-looking, and yet he's one of the good guys. Well... He's working for the good guys. Yeah. Let's not pretend he's a good guy. Again, it's a very dark graphic uh, story. Yeah. My point is, here's a supernatural character who is visually distinct from all the other things like him. And I think that's something that you can really play up. Again, White Wolf tends to be pretty good at this. It's not just, here's what my character does. It's, here's the unique way they do things. To get away from White Wolf to something else that feels like one of their products but is actually put out by a different company, the Anomine role-playing game does a really interesting job of this with angels and demons. Mm -hmm. You've got all these different choirs of angels and stuff. Um, So if your player character is angelic, you've got Cherubim versus an Ophanim. Cherubim are these guardian angels. They're all about protecting things. They have this kind of animal-like celestial form. You know, they they might look like a tiger or a gorilla or something like that. So even within that particular choir of angels, there's visual differences and differences in capabilities. And then whichever archangel they work for also adds to that, right? And Ophanim is one of the, the messenger angels, and they're depicted as these wheels of flame. It's kind of an Old Testament callback. and Yeah, straight from Ezekiel. Yep, and they're all about speed and um, delivering messages and finding the quickest way to things. And all of their stuff is different, too, depending on which archangel they're serving under. But it all kind of ties together, too. So it's that's one good example of how that can work. Yeah, and that's great. I also want to encourage people to move beyond just the classifications built into whatever system they're playing. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And come up with some unique thing about their character. Again, this kind of gets back to that reveal moment. When somebody reveals, I'm a monster, it's not just, I am this kind of monster. Again, it's not fangs pop out and you hiss. It's, I am me, this particular monster, this particular supernatural creature. What makes me interesting, unique, scary, maybe not scary, maybe, you know, hopeful or encouraging, you know, what makes me exciting to be around as opposed to all the others? Yeah. We are obviously huge fans of doing your research before a show. (laughs) (laughs) We try and do that, uh, at least for most of our episodes. So (laughs) it's never exhaustive, but it's always there. So the fact that we are going to encourage you 
to do some research on your supernatural creature before you start playing it or before you bring it into a game if you're the GM. Do some research on them and find out something other than what's in your game book should perhaps not surprise you. But we're going to encourage you to do that. Yes. <laughs> that said, certain game books are an excellent place to do research. Uh, I would sure. particularly recommend two GURPS books, um, GURPS Horror and GURPS Blood Types, if you're going to be doing something with vampires. In fact, in our first gaming curriculum episode, I recommended the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology. And I promptly went out and bought it before we even finished recording. And it was awfully good, right? Yes, it was. I doubt I've even read 10% of it, but everything in there is cool. Yeah. What's cool about a resource like that is you get information about what a particular mythological creature is and where it came from and what it represents and who is telling stories about it and why. What powers are they traditionally granted? What conflicting stories are there about this creature or this personage or, or what have you? That is fascinating because it gives you something else to build on. Obviously, if you're playing a game with very particular expectations, you may not be able to completely change the nature of your character by going back to the historical roots, but pulling some of that in and finding something else to draw on will necessarily create both a unique and distinct character at the table, but also something that is a little more coherent and a little more bound to that traditional archetype, and that will feel stranger and more alien. Something else that comes to mind, I'm going to deviate from our outline again a little bit here, but something that you may want to consider while you are doing this research is what does the first one of whatever this thing is look like? So like for a lot of um, worlds that have vampires in them, that first one is either Dracula or Cain, depending on the set of influences, how much you're going to crib from World of Darkness. And what is it about that particular thing that makes it the exemplar of whatever this monster's thing is? Yeah. How does that affect all of the ones that came afterwards? In most of these cases, that original one was a person and something about that person made them monstrous or something that they did made them monstrous. And that is typically reflected in all of the ones that came hence. Very true. As with anything that you find difficult to have in your games, if you're having trouble fitting a character in or fitting a supernatural creature in, figure out why you want it there and what it tries to do before you figure out the rules for it or figure out, you know, well, I, I just kind of can, can squeeze it in here. Find a reason. It may just have an excuse for existing that changes the setting in some interesting way. And that's probably okay, especially if it's a non-player character. But if you're playing a character, why is it important to play that character before you figure out how to do it? Yeah, I, I don't think I really have anything to add to that. I think that's probably a good note to close on. Okay, let's wrap it up here. I do want to hear stories from you listeners about any time you've really struggled with a, a character like this, whether it's struggle playing it as a Christian or a struggle to, to really get it right and make it feel unique. And I'd love to hear what you did about it, which way you went, how it worked out. I am totally cool reading other people's gaming stories. I love that. Yeah, okay, you know what? I have I have one thing to throw in there. There's like this whole thing that goes around the RPG podcasting sphere that gaming stories are already inherently kind of something that people are going to groan about and everything. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think they are true for podcasters because it chews up a lot of time. Eh, but the thing is, a lot of the time, they're extremely good examples. I mean, look at our sure. discussion at the very beginning of this episode. Oh, no, I, I agree. I can understand 
Also, frankly, some gaming stories are better than others. Yeah, I wouldn't want to, uh, to listen to a podcast episode that was just people sitting around telling gaming stories after the fact. Well, and I don't want to hear the story of your crit. No, but the interesting character moment and the stuff that happened around the table because of that, I absolutely want to hear those. I, I can listen to those all day. Yeah, so I think when we say gaming stories, we're kind of talking... The story of your crit. <laughs> yeah, the story of this one time my dice rolled and they did something statistically unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares about that. I mean, you and your player group probably do because it caused something cool to happen at the table, but... Well, the one time I rolled five crits in a session and it completely changed the way the story went... Is different from the time when I killed the dragon in two rounds. Well, even that is still a little iffy, but especially when it's, you know, I'm bragging about my skill with dice. Yeah, that's a little weird. No, no one cares. The one time I rolled five crits in a row and, like, I couldn't stop rolling 20s, it's kind of funny. And if I make that a really quick, hey, this happened last night, eh, okay, fine. But even then, like, that pushes the boundaries for me. Yeah, and unless it's one of those things where it's like, we we had this improbable series of die rolls, let's, let's say alternating critical successes and failures, for instance, and the GM had to figure out what to do with that, and it wound up changing our campaign world in the following interesting ways. By the way, let me tell you about all this neat story stuff about how our campaign world is different now due to some unlikely events that happened. That's more interesting. Yeah, it is. Anyway, we are tangenting on other geeks' bad behavior, and that's usually a good sign that we should wrap up the <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, we should probably stop recording now. Yeah. All right. Like I said, I do want to hear stories of how this went in your game. Characters that you uh, made interesting in particular ways, characters you struggled playing at all, that sort of thing. Totally up for that. If you want to follow us on social media, I would encourage you to do so. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash savingthegame. Twitter, twitter.com slash savingthegame. Google Plus, search for Saving the Game. It's harder to find there. And of course, like I said, if you want to donate to our Patreon, help us out. From all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.